Hi, you're listening to the Queensland Theatre Quality Time Podcast. Let me set the scene. Headed by Artistic Director Maddie Little, Undercover Artists Festival exists to profile and promote outstanding work by performing artists with disability. In 2021, they were one of the few organisations in the entire world to successfully share an arts festival through numerous COVID updates, lockdowns and restrictions. Today, our artistic director, Lee Lewis, is joined by Maddie and performer-writer of the festival's opening act, Oliver Hetherington Page, to discuss just how they proved Risky wrong and ended up with a roaring success. Enjoy. Welcome everybody, I am Lee Lewis, I'm the Artistic Director here at Queensland Theatre and I'd like to welcome you to another episode of Queensland Theatre's Quality Time podcast. I'm here with Maddie and Oliver and I'll hand over to them to introduce themselves and we're going to have a conversation about the Undercover Arts Festival which happened at, in the Queensland Theatre space. How long ago was it now? Oh, it was over a month ago A month now. ago. That was the 16th to the 18th of September. Which is a biennial, once every two-year festival that happens in this space that we've been supporting for a while. But I'm, I'll let Maddie tell you all about it because she is the driving force. She is the artistic director oh. of the festival. And it's been a real pleasure to have the work that you curated in the Bill Brown space and in the Dion Salento space for that period of time. It's a really special time in our in our year when a huge range of artists come into the building and we get to share the space. So hello and welcome to these lands, the lands of the Yugger and the Turable people. We make all of our work on these lands, but we look forward to times when we can travel it to lands beyond. Welcome and thank you for joining me for this fabulous podcast. <laughs> thank you for having us. Thank you for having me <laughs> and Maddie as well. Uh, you're welcome, <laughs> Oliver. <laughs> Now, we were having a pre-conversation to this conversation about how how difficult it is to open up the mysterious world of theatre and let people know how it is that we do what we do. And, and Oliver, you were talking about when your play was on in the Bill Brown Theatre as part of the festival, how people had questions for you about how this thing happened. What was that? It was interesting because we are just, you know, having those conversations with friends that came to see the show that like theatre but aren't necessarily theatre people. And they were asking, oh, the, the lights were so good. How did that come to be? And I was like, that was 20 conversations between me and my lighting designer of like every moment that you see is 20 choices that we didn't make. And I think there's a lack of understanding around that of like for every choice that you make, there are 10 choices that are equally good, different, that we for various reasons chose not to make or if we had the opportunity to do it again in a different space in a different time we might have made a different choice but the circumstances in that moment well we made that choice because that was the right choice for the bill brown because originally i was meant to be in the diane salento but due to ticket sales i was Bumped. Yeah, which seemed, uh, the, uh, like which is a great problem to have, being bumped up to a bigger venue. venue. Everyone knows the story where you go down to a smaller venue because you haven't sold enough tickets. Terrible yeah. story. This is the reverse of that. Yes, but it meant on a design level, the they're very different spaces, and we suddenly, with about a month to go, had to bump all our tech to a suit 
that space and that was a big conversation between me, my lighting designer and our technical team of how do we not sacrifice a show that was designed for a smaller fringe space like the Diane Salento. Which is 90 seats. Which is 90 seats. (laughs) Into suddenly a theatre that is 350 seats, (laughs) but also make it bigger, but not sacrifice the intimacy of what we wanted when we were designing the show. So that those conversations were really interesting and not what people see. Yeah, that question of intimacy, the Bill Brown can be intimate, but you have to work quite hard technically to make it so. And your show, which was fabulous fun, was also very personal and was really dependent, it feels, from an audience point of view, on that magic that you created between you and the audience. So that personal relationship, that intimacy was integral to the success of the work. And you knew you could do it in the Dion Salento, but you're right, the technical support for a work so that it can reach in a larger space space is huge. So sorry sorry about that. <laughs> no, look, it, you're right. It is a great problem to have and I'm not going to complain about being able to perform in the Bill Brown, but also it was a adjustment that me and my team had to make very quickly. Look, I'll say it was also a very big problem for us as the festival team, Oliver, selling out so quickly. And then again, when we released more seats, it was actually, it's all your fault, Oliver, that you were too popular. There were lots of strategic decisions that had to go into it, conversations with Oliver and I about whether or not you and your team felt like it's something you wanted to do, or do we add another show, a performance in the DCS, or no, he'll just sell that out really quickly too. So bigger space. And it, and it worked out too, because we lost some of our interstate performers due to COVID. Uh, COVID. So and, tell me, as yeah. a festival director who's survived in the COVID times, <laughs> what's that been like? Um, mildly traumatic is is a good way to put it, but it's also about opportunity, really, in the end. So you can have these hopes and dreams and then trying to shift your or reframe your thinking so that it's not about what you've lost, but we have the opportunity to do something different now and respond. That was the only way I got through it <laughs> was with the sense of don't overthink it. We just need to make the decisions. And so when we knew, okay, Sarah Hubolt, who was incredible, isn't able to kick off our festival with her show, Cuckoo the Bird Girl. But Oliver's over here selling out and he's like a local crowd favourite at this point. So he can kick off our festival. And that's a really profound opportunity as well to support an emerging artist with his brand new work that, you know, that kind of opportunity doesn't normally exist in a festival format. So, yeah, look, it was it was a mix of emotions and lots of sleepless nights, but we got there in the end. And I'd say that the uh, applause was awesome and incredible and almost blew my mind a little bit. So I think it was a good choice in the end. Absolutely. Look, as one of the happy audience members sitting there yeah. applauding on opening night, I thought that that was a great, it was a great choice. But it was it was also that thing, isn't it, of what seems risky, mm. it's great when the world proves to you that it's not. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, when you program a work, you try and put it in in a space that you think is a good fit for it. It's lovely when a work blows the roof off the space (laughs) and bursts out of that smaller space into a bigger one. Whereas if you'd been put into the Bill Brown to begin with, there's a pressure in that scale which is sometimes welcome, sometimes not. And I I look back on it as the artist involved. When I came to Maddie, I had a title and a vague concept of I want to use music theatre to talk about autism and a show called The No Bang Theory. That was really all that I had And it's Maddie's faith in, like, I can see what Oliver is trying to do that even got me the funding to start that ball rolling. And and if I'd been told, 
in a year's time you're going to perform this show in the Bill Brown, I'd be going, no, <laughs> let's ab- abort mission, abort mission, <laughs> not going to happen. But because it was just baby steps every step of the way, first it was the first 15 minutes, then it was the whole show in the Diane Salento, and then suddenly it was in the Bill Brown, opening the festival, <laughs> the head of the State Theatre Company is in the front row. Sorry about that. I don't organise the seating. When I, I, sat, I saw that, I was like, oh, this is so horrible. Can I have a seat up the back? I never get to sit in the front row. <laughs> that was that was completely my fault too. There was a conversation about, okay, well, festival director should sit next to the artistic director of the State Theatre Company, but Maddie's access requirements dictate no stairs, so I guess you're in the front row. Front row or the back row. And I'm exactly. pretty sure that front row was better. Yeah. Oh, you know, it was phenomenal. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, no, it was an adjustment of like, okay, there is no hiding, there is no, and not that you can hide on stage anyway, but. No, but you, you like to lie to yourself sometimes and think that you can <laughs> hide on stage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm just doing a show. Just, no one's going to know. No one's going to know. It's all good. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a funny thing, isn't it, when you go, I mean, there must have been, and I asked you about that moment where you kind of went, oh, let me pick up the phone and call Oliver and see if if he would like to do this. Mm. Because there's, there's one thing where you go, this is solved, and you go, I have to ask the artist <laughs> if this is something that yeah. I want. How did that conversation well, go? I mean, first of all, it was a conversation with myself and our fabulous festival producer, Hannah Tao, because, you know, we we kind of are inseparable almost. It's a bit sickening. Um, but we're quite close, and so we, we talk almost everything through. And when we were like, okay, look, we just have to make the call. We just have to cut these interstate artists because we can't risk, you know, all of these massive touring parties and border restrictions and buying tickets and losing money and all of those things. But at the same time, the happy point for us was, I think Oliver first originally sold out two days after we went on sale and launched our program. I mean, that's phenomenal. And so it's, you know, it comes back to that opportunity. I, you know, I can't remember if it was Hannah or myself who suggested it, but there was a really interesting conversation there about, hang on a minute, Oliver's really popular and he's going to smash it. We're confident in the quality of his work because we saw the creative development that we supported last year it's going to be hilarious and poignant and beautiful and what an opportunity to put an emerging artist on stage to open the festival. And there was a conversation about what it actually sets the tone for for the whole festival is that we're putting authentic disabled stories on stage well what better way to do it than with someone talking about his own life and doing it so well and uh, making us all laugh and potentially cry in the process. So thank you for the kind words. You're very I will welcome. eventually <laughs> learn how to receive positive affirmation, but that day is not today. (laughs) (laughs) No one's good at taking a compliment, dude. No No one. Not at all. (laughs) (laughs) Well, watch this. Now, you ran one of the most successful festivals uh, in the world in that time frame, if you think about it, insofar as, you know, yeah, you can put a context about it and say it's in this time, but the fact that you were doing a festival at all... And a festival inside a festival, yes. doubly complicated, yeah. it has to be celebrated in the scheme of, you know, world theatre in the last two years. We're all very good at not looking at the big picture because the big picture when you're in the run-up can be quite frightening. But a month afterwards, what are you most happy about insofar as that? Oh, most happy about? Um I guess there's, I mean, there's the relief that we made it and certainly that's something Hannah and I felt on our closing night. We were watching Aspie Jones and his band play and I think I had my first proper drink of the entire festival and I'm sitting there going, oh, my gosh, we we actually made it 
through watching the 10 a.m. press conferences every single day, wondering if we'd start a festival and have to stop. But I think there's something really beautiful too about seeing the growth of the festival and and getting that momentum going for some of our artists as well. So the fact that Oliver's show is going to Wynnum Fringe next is amazing. He's going from success to another success. Sorry, I'm complimenting you more. And we've got I'm just nodding quietly and <laughs> accepting the compliment. <laughs> Excellent. And then, you know, we've got some other artists who, you know, like Aspie Jones, for example, he's releasing single after single and and uh, he and his band said it was one of the best gigs that he ever played. And Aspie actually saw most of the shows throughout the festival leading up to his own gig. And something he reflected on during his performance was the fact that the quality of talent was so incredible, but also to be part of a community feel, to know that this is the the place where you can make art and you can be, you know, authentic to yourself and your own stories and tell them in the best way possible, that that was reflected so well over the course of the few days. I think that's the biggest accomplishment or biggest, uh, I don't know, but the word I'm looking for is success is that we've done something that meant a lot to the artists and then to the community that we serve and then also putting that on stage in such a way that the wider community can see that we actually make really good stuff and the time for underestimating us is well over. And I can build on that yeah. from my own experience. Since the festival, I've gotten a number of working opportunities, not necessarily because of the festival, but because I am out there doing this now, I can't just be kind of brushed aside. So I've been getting access work and doing working with companies to really how can they be the most accessible companies possible. And that wouldn't have happened before because I wasn't being seen as a disabled artist. It was, oh, that's just Oliver doing what Oliver does, talking about. But now it's, oh, no, he's respected. He is getting opportunities. He performed in the Bill Brown Theatre. He's, you know, <laughs> a serious artist now. We need to get him on board and because we want to work with him. And that wouldn't have happened before Undercover mm. Artists at Festival, which is why I think it's a great festival because it creates opportunities that might lead to something else or it might not and it might go down a completely different path. But the fact that I had the opportunity in the first instance is a win in and of itself. Yeah. So for, for people who might not have made it to the festival, but who should be looking to come <laughs> not not next year, but the year after, so 2023 is yes. the next festival, yes. give me an idea of what the scale of it is, what the ambition of it is, and what um, why people should come in 23. Yeah, well, Undercover Artist Festival exists to profile and promote the outstanding work of artists with disability. So, and, and disability that encompasses, you know, a whole different range of experiences. We're talking deaf, we're talking disabled, we're talking chronically ill, mentally ill, you know, all of these things that perhaps, you know, people caught up with what is disability as an identity, you know, don't worry about all of that. It's just putting work on stage that's really phenomenal. And it's about the performing arts. So it's music, dance, theatre, comedy, poetry. I don't think I've missed anything. Cabaret, circus, I have missed things. <laughs> <laughs> and so much more. And, um, you know, sometimes a combination of all of these things, like Oliver combining cabaret and musical theatre and a, quite a bit of comedy, if I do say so. Um, this year it was, it was originally meant to be four days, Turned out to be three, thanks COVID, but that's okay. We had three tracks to the festival. We had our career track, which is ex existed to provide workshop opportunities, professional development for artists with disability who, you know, you can't access the same opportunities elsewhere because they're just not accessible. And part of that, we partnered with Arts Access Australia to bring their meeting place forum to 
well, it was meant to be to Brisbane, but again, COVID changed plans, but it was virtual and we hosted it and it was great. And then there's community tracks. So thinking about, you know, the community choirs and theatre dance ensembles that we're all familiar with. Probably when we think of disability arts, we think of those groups. And then we have the creative track. And it was really important to me and to the whole festival that the creative track focused on disability-led professional standard work. And when we say professional standard, we're, we're aware of the fact that a lot of our artists may not have had that opportunity to present professional standard work, but it's about challenging what the professional standard even looks like. If we only see abled bodies on stage, we're going to think that that's professional, but there's nothing unprofessional about a disabled body on the same stage in the same lighting with the same sound and et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, we had Oliver's phenomenal show. We had Lauren Watson's incredible aerial theatre work, Nerve. She'd been working on it for a few years. We had Andy Snelling, our sole interstate artist. We took a risk with a one-person touring party to come up from Adelaide and she blew us away with her incredible theatre work, Happy Go Wrong, which had clowning and verbatim theatre elements and it was just really beautiful. Oh, my gosh, I could talk forever. The podcast would just be me raving about every <laughs> single artist. No, you, it's happened a couple of times where you talked about, Oliver, you talked about 15 minutes and the conversation, yeah. um, the conversation with Maddie that started it all. How long did it take you to make that show? I, I started that in the height of COVID last year, that Access Arts and Undercover Artists were doing a grant program for a mentorship program. And I received $2,000 to develop that first 15 minutes with Alex Woodward, a Brisbane-based music theatre producer person. That being the technical term. (laughs) Um, Chuck it on your CV, Alex. (laughs) And Um, he came on board very early to mentor me through the producing side of it. And we also at that stage got on board Lewis Jones, who is a Brisbane-based director, and he came on board and really helped finesse that 15 minutes of the show. And that was presented at Undercover Artists Online, which Maddie can probably talk more about at some point during this discussion. And from there, Maddie was very kind to say, hey, we're doing an in-person version next year do you want to come on board? And I said, yes, of course I do. (laughs) Let me figure out how to pay for it. And I was very lucky. I applied to Arts Queensland. I got some COSP funding for that. And so I was able to keep Alex on board. I was able to keep Lewis on board. And I was able to hire my music teacher, Timothy Forrester, as a music director, music designer. I was able to hire Freddie Comp as a lighting and sound designer and I was able to get a big team on board to do my show, which is not a simple show. No. (laughs) No, it's not. And can we just very quickly, because Oliver's being humble, how much funding did you get? $25,000. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't this your first grant application? It was my first grant yeah. application. So just throwing that out there, that Oliver, in his first grant application for his first solo show, um, first out of uni, is that correct? First out of uni, because yeah. I graduated in 2019, <laughs> and then the world's changed. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but I think it's it's absolutely testament to Oliver's skill and capability, and then I think also to the fact that there was an opportunity presented for an accessible development 
situation program Mm -hmm. (laughs) that helped not enable you to do it because you had the capacity to do it all along, but kind of just nudge you along a little bit. Gently. Look, every artist <laughs> needs nudges and support yeah. in different ways. And it's acknowledging that the needs are different across every every artist. Yeah. But that there any making of a new work is in it's petrifying. <laughs> and I don't write because I'm not that brave. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't imagine making and then being in the work. But creating something out of nothing where there was no show yeah. to go from a zero to a fully produced and successful work. Yeah. That's an extraordinary journey for every artist. And every artist will have different needs, but actually a path that actually is tailored to the needs of artists Mm. is incredibly important. And without it, people can't make those next steps. Absolutely. I mean, you were talking about, and I'm sorry, I don't know the name of the artist from Adelaide. Andy Snelling. Well, that question about a work that takes many has taken many years oh, to, yeah. to yeah. produce. You know, every work takes its own time. Mm. You had a year under particular COVID circumstances. <laughs> in a regular year where all your time was different, it might not have come to full shape within a year. And the thing is, I don't think I could have made that show before COVID. Yeah. Mm. Like I jokingly said I want to do an autism musical cabaret thing at some point for years and years and years. But it was during COVID when everything was paused and everything was shut down. I was finally able to reflect on where I am now and all the things that have happened to me throughout my life and put it in a larger context. But I wouldn't have been able to do that if we hadn't been shut down because it forces us to reflect. And it was that reflection that I had that light bulb moment of, oh, no, this is a musical with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and the kind of arc of it only happened because I was nothing else was happening, that in real life you're constantly moving and life is happening so you're not noticing the narrative forming. Yeah. So it's good that life stopped happening so the story of your life could happen. Yeah, <laughs> weirdly. <laughs> well, look, there are all sorts of strange COVID silver linings. And I think, mm. again, in the myriad of stories that different artists will have, this last period of time we've lost some artists from the industry. They've gone just, no, this is too hard. But then other artists have found their way in, in a way. Yeah. It's been an extraordinary time. So I think it's going to take the world a, a few years to recover and reflect. And then the next wave of work that comes from this time I'm really interested in. Yeah, absolutely. I just, I, I've heard whisperings and mumblings from different colleagues. I'm like, oh, what are you working on? Oh, this hint of an idea could be really, really great. Oh, what stage is that going to be on in three years time? You know, all of this magical connections and networking, but also brainstorming that just happens over Zoom because you're trapped in your house or, but look, or whatever. But yeah. it's interesting and, and thinking back to last year where mm. everything was, was online, realising the extraordinary amount of access that people who in the past maybe hadn't been mm. able to make it in the theater, into the theatre, those conversations were really quite mind-boggling for yeah. me where people are saying, no, this is the first time I've actually been able to engage. Yes. And you go, yeah. oh, so how do we keep this channel of communication and engagement open Yeah, rather than it being a, well, yes, it was a product of the time, but you kind of go, it actually should be a way that we communicate all the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. We were we were so hoping and wishing and praying that we could have an online component to the festival this year and for a number of different reasons. It wasn't feasible. But that's something we're definitely looking to. Well, because it's twice as yeah. much work, right? Oh, it's twice as yeah, much yes. work, twice as much money. <laughs> so when you, yeah, so it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's 
Yes. Yes. So we've got to find the money to do that. But well, what's mm. interesting is that we've all gone, oh, no, we have to because yeah. just the sheer accessibility yes. for, across, t- across time and space for people has oh. been amazing. And I've spoken to a number of disabled people about this. For years and years they were saying, I can work, but I can't do the nine to five in the office yes. thing mm-hmm. that was required. And can I work from home? Can I do Zoom in or yeah. not that we had Zoom, but S- Skype or, you know, mm. video conference in and employees were always, oh, no, we have to have the nine to five office things. And then suddenly COVID forced everyone to upskill. Mm. upskill even though this is what disabled people have been doing long before COVID, mm. but... They needed everyone else to upskill, yeah. yes. essentially. Yeah, I was like, come on, guys. Like, I'm used to this already. TikTok, hurry up. <laughs> but but having, you know, been in a company that had to go from, you know, everybody feeling fairly computer literate, mm-hmm. the freak out <laughs> when everybody suddenly had to log into an unfamiliar thing and how do I do this in order? Yeah. Because people pride themselves in seeming competent and yes. no one seemed competent yeah. in the first two weeks of Zoom. We were all yes. going, huh, 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 huh. it was yeah. like, comic really. <laughs> but that that happened across the country, across the world, yeah. that suddenly people who didn't have to use that tool before mm. had to become competent in it, in it very quickly. Yeah. And we did, and the tool got better. Yes. The poor little guys who invented Zoom, I felt a bit sorry for them. And suddenly everyone's going, well, it doesn't do this and it doesn't do this. It was like, it was a failing company before COVID. <laughs> and suddenly it was the way we survived. Yeah. So, you know, I, mean, I hope they're sitting on a beach somewhere going, having a month <laughs> off and going, oh, maybe the pressure can start to ease off a bit. But that became... Really interesting, that question of what that communication space is, what it allows, and so what's been missing before. Yes. Yeah. No, absolutely. We, we can't go back. No, nor can we afford to do it completely at the same time exactly. as what we're doing. So we're figuring out the money. We're in the yes. phase of figuring out the money. Oh, the money side of things is is horrific. I mean, that's the other thing, you know, a lot of what happened and what was able to happen during COVID happened because of sheer goodwill, people desperate for connection. We just found ways to connect. We found ways to make work. And and I know I was writing, well, I was trying to, you know, write a show with a couple of different artist friends of mine through Zoom and we weren't getting paid to do it. We were just doing it because we had time and we had to do something. We had to stay creative. But now we're in, okay, how do we transition into a, a sustainable method of working and a sustainable audience development strategy through making work accessible online, through inviting people in and seeing what we do and, and how we do it. And there's no quick fix or easy answer, but it you know, goes back to that whole thing about what Oliver was saying. There are 20 questions or 20 decisions that are made before you can get to that final one. It's the same thing with how do we continue that accessibility trajectory for the work that we make. And the thing about the money side of theatre is one of the things that most people don't see. Like for the longest time, I was coming to see shows here or at La Boite or any of the myriad of other companies doing amazing work in Brisbane. And I just had a good time at the theatre. I was a general audience human. And it was only when I was getting to uni and meeting the people that were making that work and they were telling me the horror stories of (laughs) what is going on behind the scenes where I'm going, oh, my God, I saw that show. I either liked it or didn't like it, depending on whatever the show was. And to hear that feedback of what was going on behind the scenes somehow made that show, even if I 
really didn't like it at the time that I saw it, fascinating Mm. because there's so many choices and so much like the money behind it and the things behind it. It's more complicated than we can ever see on stage. And look, the audience shouldn't see that. Yeah. You know, they really shouldn't. They should just be able to go and have their night where our job is to inspire and challenge and entertain them. You know, they that's it's about them on that night. Yeah. Shouldn't be sitting there going, oh, that fight choreo was probably about two grand. <laughs> yeah. You shouldn't be able to cost out what you no. see. <laughs> Although it's sometimes fun to do that. I did a show once where we had to have a, a beautiful dress trashed each night. Yes. Was it must have been... Colette Dinnigan donated a dress. This thing came out and it turns out it was made with something that could be washed in the washing machine. And she gave us two. So this thing got, and it was the new season stuff. So there were all these like society women looking at this thing and they knew exactly how much that dress cost and we were trashing it each (laughs) night and they were horrified. (laughs) So sometimes it can work in your favour in a design way. But most of the time, no. I mean, Mm. at the moment we've got Return to the Dirt on stage, which is Steve Perry's play. It's phenomenal. It is definitely phenomenal. It's the recycled play. Mm. The challenge with this, you know, in the scheme of a year where things are a bit tight and we've had a couple of, like, we had Boy Swallows Universe, which was incredibly expensive, (laughs) is what it is. But the way I snuck in a different one is by keeping the budget super Mm. low because Renee Mulder said, I'll make it out of stuff that's already there. So we've we've pillaged. You could actually have prop bingo. (laughs) There are things from so many different different plays. Costumes, a lot of the costumes, apart from the, the suits of the funeral directors, were just in stock here. We yeah. have storage here of things that we haven't used from other shows yeah. and like the all of the golfing stuff was all owned. <laughs> you said they didn't own all of that. So we find tricky ways as as a big theatre company yeah. to s- save money and cut corners yeah. in cost. But, yeah, it's a terribly expensive thing that um, we do. One of the my favourite quotes that I think about in this conversation is, no one leaves the theatre humming the scenery. That <laughs> Oh, look, I don't know. Sometimes <laughs> there's some... Fab scenery. I look. I actually. I would dispute that. But what what <laughs> what I think about when I think about that quote is what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. If someone is coming out of the show going, that was some expensive fun. scenery. It's yeah. true. <laughs> you don't want that to be the primary comment. Like <laughs> that's saying that they didn't. If they're talking about those yeah. periphery things, then whatever the sh- show was trying to. Yeah, no, the, no. The conversation should be about what the show was trying, trying to say. say. The conversation should be about what matters inside it, not how we've made it. It's true. Like, I loved Return to the Dirt, and my conversations are about what it says about yes. death. Yes. Yes. And not about the golf costumes. Not about the Although golf costumes. Although they were excellent. And yes. completely free. <laughs> yeah. That picture. Didn't cost a cent. So what I'm hearing is that the uh, highest cost in the budget were the consumables, meaning the popcorn that Steve eats on he stage. He eats a lot of popcorn. Okay, I keep saying I was don't eat the popcorn. That. I was wondering about that because I was like, hang on a minute. There doesn't seem to be a lot left in that bag. No, no. He goes through a, po- a bag of popcorn a night. That is an expensive artist. There you go. So now we know the, the true inner workings of Return to the Dirt. It's the popcorn expense. Yeah, there's a, a popcorn and a biscuit Ah, yes, the Arnott's Biscuit I saw saw and I was like, oh, I could really go for a shortbread cream right now. (laughs) That's the benefit of sitting in the front row. (laughs) You see the exact biscuit. Well, and that's what I love about that space. And you talk about the confronting thing if your artistic director happens to be sitting in the front row. (laughs) When you make a show in a venue like that, you're making for the front row people 
a, a slightly different show to the to the back row people. Yes. You've got to have enough big picture yes. for the story to play up the back, but you also got to offer some details mm. to the front row. And the detail matters. You can't get away with anything in that space. It is, as you know, mm. Oliver, it's so close because people can see what biscuit goes into the mouth <laughs> and you kind of go, it's easy to eat some of those Arnest biscuits. Mm. They're easy to chew, but, you know, you get a shortbread, one of those shortbread ones, that's yep. a lot of dry biscuit. I was counting the crumbs <laughs> coming yeah. out of, uh, is it Mitchell's, <laughs> Mitchell's mouth? mouth. As he uh, says a few fabulous lines. So I was like, oh, that was about seven crumbs. No. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But no, it's, it's also phenomenal though too, that that space and, and the versatility of it. Knowing how many different shows can be brought to life in that space. You go, oh, the Billy Brown, okay, it's a corner stage. That's great. What does that mean? How many different stories do you tell? I mean, I think about what we were able to do with Undercover Artist yeah. Festival and go, this is so different to a Queensland Theatre main stage, but oh my goodness. It's it, a very welcoming space, isn't it? It's such a welcoming space. Yeah. You can make it your own. What's um, it like standing on the stage? It was, when I first went in, I'm like, oh my God, I, as a single person on this stage, am going to like, felt for a while that I was just going to melt in that <laughs> space because it's a big space, but it's also an intimate space and finding that balance. Mm. But Thanks to the work of Lewis Jones, who did an amazing job yeah. creating the world through simple set, mm -hmm. but it's really just a couple of placards, a uh, costume coat rack, and a chair and a table. But that creates the world of the thing. And so then I'm in the world of that, and I'm not in the Billy Brown space anymore. And that was comforting. And it was overwhelming but also an amazing opportunity because I've been coming to this space for so long and as an emerging artist you dream of getting onto that stage and then to be there was, it was a gift but also a terrifying thing simultaneously. <laughs> it's an interesting one though it doesn't fight you. No. It's not a, because it, you're straight, you know, the audience can, when they see the walls, it's they're not that far away. It's not a mysterious cavern of a space. Mm, not in the same way that the playhouse is. No, that yeah. can be, that can be really big. It's a yeah. lovely, lovely, lovely venue as well, but so big. You wonder how far it goes backstage. You go, oh, look, I know the river's somewhere <laughs> around here, but I'm not too sure. I need a compass. <laughs> yeah. But you, when you're standing centre stage in the Bill Brown, you can almost see the eyes of the people in the back row. Mm which means that they can see yours. <laughs> so all your subtext is very present. I think it's good we have this conversation after Oliver did the show. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 have we had this conversation beforehand? Uh, yeah, and it, it would be a very different show. Would I have gotten a very panicked phone call? Yes, you would have definitely gotten a very panicked phone call. <laughs> Oh, but look, it's, a, it's interesting. Artists work towards a particular space. You go, mm. oh, I'd love to do that. Yeah. And it then takes time. Like you said, you talk for years about wanting to do to do your show or version of your show. And then the time happens and you kind of, it, it becomes inevitable at a certain mm. point. And then circumstances mean that you're there. Now, now there's no stopping you. <laughs> I believe that some stories almost demand to be told, right? The, mm. the nuggets if, that they come out. They definitely rise just, up. Yeah. And they have to rise. It's hard to force a story out. Yes. Oh, absolutely. As an, and as an artistic director, I mean, you, you oh. find that you're talking to people and they want to, but you can yes. feel sometimes that they're not quite ready. Absolutely. And absolutely. sometimes they want to be encouraged ahead of their readiness. Yeah. And sometimes they actually don't. And sometimes... Yeah. Some, I don't know. Sometimes they might be dragging behind a little bit and you just have to go, no, the idea is great. Come on. 
you know, we, we can do this. We can do this together. I mean, the whole process of programming the festival was quite wild because we had an expressions of interest period and we had a couple of different artists that I'd reached out to, like Oliver. And, you know, in Oliver's case, I had to because I saw the development. I was like, no, like that is that is something that belongs in this festival. We need this. It says something really important. And I believe in this work and this artist. And then you look at some of the expressions of interest and you go, oh, like this artist does phenomenal work, but this idea doesn't feel like the right opportunity for this festival. And it's really hard to let go of some of those because you go, oh, that, you know, that particular show would work great at the Powerhouse, for example, in its cultural hub space, probably on the turbine platform where anyone could walk in and out, as opposed to a corner stage at the State Theatre Company. And it's really tough. You feel like you're breaking hearts along the way, but at the same time, you know, I would much rather break hearts by trying to serve the work as it demands to be, you know, served and told rather than... Use the work for your own ends in building exactly. a festival at the expense of the artist or that work. Exactly, yeah. exactly. I don't like the the term, you know, setting people up to fail because I don't think that's it. But I do think that there's something about, you know, if what we're trying to do is profile and promote outstanding work, then we have to support outstanding work the way that it should be presented, not the way that I, you know, I mean, I'm an artist myself. I can't go to Oliver and go, you know what, I would have done it differently. I would have changed this set element or I would that's not what the story is about it's it's not the no bang theory featuring Madeline Little it's it's Oliver Hetherington Page and he deserves to tell his story the way that he needs to so yeah it, look it's but there, there are sleepless nights involved and I'm sure you'd have the same thing where you go how do you piece works together and even just works that are brilliant but don't fit alongside the four others. Well, you know the, that kills me but then sometimes when there are works that are similar yes because people stories rise up in a time, right? Yes. And sometimes yes. people are trying to tell similar stories. Yes. It can, it's particular to them, but from an audience on the outside point of view, yeah. they can seem too similar and that would be to the detriment of both artists. Absolutely. So saying no to one because mm. what you you take a gamble mm. that the other one will work more in this time. And that uh, just, oh. I mean, I'm sure you know, <laughs> the, the, look, I love being an artistic director. Don't yes. get me wrong. Yes. But most of my job is saying no to people. Yeah. We, we program eight shows a year mm. here at Queensland Theatre. That's only eight yeses. Yeah. There's a lot of no's. How, how did you manage that? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> there, was, there was a fair amount of, I don't know if trepidation is the right word, I had to go in with an excitement for what the festival would be. So in looking at the bigger picture, I had to go, okay, I can choose to spend my time really grieving the works that we lose or that aren't ready yet, or I can go in with the knowledge that these artists, there are other ways that we can support them. And perhaps by putting certain shows on stage, they see that, are inspired by it or are influenced by it, or they can join in our professional development opportunities or you know, even just have a chat about, I was a big fan of works that I really, really wanted, but had to say no to. A really thoughtful essay of a rejection email, just outlining why, because I think it's really important for artists to also know that they're not being, we're not saying no to the artist, we're saying no to this particular opportunity. And, you know, one of the works in particular, my heart actually broke quite a bit, but it was a very intimate performance art, you know, one-on-one -on -one experience 
where we basically needed the whole festival to put it on. And across that whole festival, only 30 people would experience it. And we had too many concerns around logistics, space, ticketing, COVID safe protocols that it just was like, oh, my heart breaks. I want to be part of this work. I want to be a participant in this intimate experience, but we can't make it happen. How do we make sure that that door stays open to that artist who is doing incredible things? So I don't know. There are lots of different elements. And I think there's also a heavier weight involved knowing that in the performing arts, there are so few opportunities for deaf and disabled artists. So when I have to say no to them, (laughs) it is... um, it's a little bit upsetting because I go, I know how hard you work and how few opportunities are available. I don't want this to feel like another door shut. I want it to be a different door is opening on a different path or a different opportunity. And that possibly a lot of that comes from being a disabled artist myself and being on that receiving end of those no's. Oh, Maddie, you'll you'll never work in the arts unless you fix the way you walk. I'm like, okay. I mean, that person had to watch me do my opening speech at the festival, so that was a that was a nice, uh, you know, full circle moment. Little wins, little little wins. I was like, oh, you're keeping your head down, not talking to me. That's fine. But but that's the sort of thing that I heard, and if I'm hearing it, so many other people would be hearing it too. I can certainly say I experienced a lot of it definitely during university as well. I studied a BFA in drama and that program is set up for a certain type of body and a certain type of mind and how they make theatre and my body was not that body. So how do I say no to someone who's had that experience whilst also welcoming them in? It's a very tricky balance and I haven't perfected it. But I've also had the benefit of Brisbane Festival Artistic Director Louise Bazina. She's been my mentor through the process. And so it's been really helpful just having someone go, no, your instincts are right. You can keep going. It's okay. It's unfortunate, but we just have to do the best we can. And you talk about similar shows existing. Mm. I know of a work based out of Melbourne called The Aspial, which is a very similar work to mine. They're both autism, music theatre, cabarets kind of stuff. And I haven't seen the work. I've only heard wonderful things about this work. And they reached out to me in the lead up to the festival and said that I think they said that they'd applied. Yes, they had. Yeah. For this festival and it didn't work out, but they were super congratulatory. And I, my heart breaks for those artists because I want to see that work Mm. because I, as an autistic artist that loves music theatre, want to see autistic music theatre performances. <laughs> so I want to see it, but I understand from a, a Maddie business perspective, my show and that show can't coexist at the same No, and festival. let me tell you, we talked about it for hours. Yeah. <laughs> we talked about it for hours. The, the quality of the material in both works was so outstanding and my stomach is rumbling now. I'm sorry if you're picking that up. Um, <laughs> but the quality was was there and it was a really hard decision. And if you go back to, I think, drafts one through six of the program, you probably would have seen both of them there and trying to shuffle them around and it just... It wasn't going to work and yet it, it, it broke my heart but it was one of those moments where I had to go, you know what, what, what are the factors that can help me make this decision? And it, it did come down to COVID. How safe is it planning more interstate than local artists? Is it, uh, you know, I've already committed to Oliver in this work because I believe in it and it needs to be seen by the Brisbane theatre scene. So 
that's what we have to do. And that's not to say that the Aspie Hour may not come to us in 2023. I think that'd be fantastic. But, you know, yeah, it... um, Thank you for breaking my heart by bringing that up, Oliver. Uh, <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I wouldn't have brought it up except yeah, yeah, no. I've had it's, conversations with those artists. Sure. And look, that's that's also that thing of, you know, as an artist, when you do receive a no, how do you not let that turn you against other artists? Yes. That's a yes. really big conversation that we're, we're having more as a theatre yeah. community. I really like that there's been a conversation between you mm. and them as as makers going, look, mm. you know, working in similar territory, yeah, like supporting each other. Absolutely. And actually realising sometimes your paths are going to cross, sometimes your paths will never cross because this same thing will actually come up for a period of time. Yeah. But it's they're just forming the shortlist for the Queensland Premier's Drama Award that's happening right at the moment. And it, it's really interesting. We saw a lot of people from around the country writing similar stories. There are lots of trauma stories being mm. written at the moment in different ways. People have had time. Yes. And they're writing quite close to themselves. Yeah. And looking at them all, it's kind of like of the plays about this topic, there are four or five. Mm-hmm. So which you're already making that thing of the choices happening in that. that yeah. And trying to reassure playwrights that just because one was that they're in a playwriting prize that actually goes to production, Mm. you're going to make a choice with plays that are further along formally. So sometimes it's the work is further along. Sometimes it's, it's put in a different way, but there, there is no science to it. No. And that's what I try and reassure people. It's, it's an artist like yourself sitting in that choice decision spot. (laughs) going, I'm going to choose one or the other. There is no right choice. There's no. just the choice that you as an artist are going to make mm. with the best of intents in supporting both the artist and the yep. work in the time that you're in. Absolutely. Yeah. And and there's also that element too of having to um, shut out the inevitable critique of the decisions that you make. Because certainly, I mean, we did the post-event surveys and there were, I mean, the vast majority of feedback was overwhelmingly positive. And we did get, you know, some people who weren't happy with the decisions that I made. And, and how, I mean, I've been meaning to actually email you about this for a while and just go, how do you deal with that? Because sometimes it can feel very personal to go, I know so many, you know, insert um, genre artists who deserved this spot and I don't think that this other show deserved a spot. I saw it and I didn't like it. It's like, well, we have to come back to art being subjective and that the concept that you just said, there's no right decision. It's about what is, I guess the most instinctive decision looking at all of the factors across the board. Like you said, if you've got 10 plays on the same topic, which ones rise to the top? And that's about the time that you're in. Yeah. It's about, yes, there's the subjective of like how you are as you're reading and considering and and it doesn't, it shouldn't ever mean that it's a a complete no to the other works. It's just at this time. Absolutely. And two years down the track with more development, you absolutely embrace something. You keep yeah. it, and that's interesting for me in that space between the festivals and between the programmings, yes. both advocating for other works that I've come across that weren't yes. right for, yep. for one of our seasons. I consciously work, especially with new Australian plays, mm. to recommend writers to other companies Yes, and feel like, and then I'll drop a line to someone saying, hey, you came up in conversation. I hope you don't mind. I, I told them to to, look, to have a look out on your work, I hope that's okay. Mm. Yes. I always try and check because the work could have changed or yes. the artist could have moved on from it. But it's also that thing of trying to reassure artists that just the no on that day doesn't mean a no forever. Mm. It just means a no on that day. 
And I think about that because I apply for the QPA. I don't, I don't know if I'll make the shortlist. And oh, I'm, sorry. No, no, same here. Same <laughs> sorry. here. I applied to. That's what we're in in the middle of right now. Yeah. We're just coming towards the it's long okay. listing. All of this play, I'm sure, is great. Yeah, like, and, oh, look. <laughs> I have no idea if you have yeah. yet. Sorry, because I don't know. Yeah. I don't know the, oh, gosh. No, literally, I'm literally a half a day away from actually getting all of the names with the go with the plays. So I don't know. I'm so sorry. You just sorry. made Lee, like, oh, worry. And- no, no. I don't know. I don't I'm genuinely not worried. And I bring it up to say I have confidence in my script that I've even since submitting it, it's not the end of the process. I've already like changed that script about five times since submitting it, but it was on the deadline. Deadline. (laughs) The deadline. deadline. That is where the script was at. Yep. When I submitted it, what my thinking was about it, where what I thought it's an unproduced play. And also, you, they, it's I'm whatever also it is on that day. Thinking about knowing that it has to be produced at the mm-hmm. end of this, I'm also at the time thinking about what can Queensland Theatre functionally do in that moment, and all those kind of decisions that it might be with a different company in a different time, in a different circumstance, a different home. Look, <laughs> next year's season has two plays that came to us through the Queensland Premier's Drama Award. Neither of them won. One was shortlisted, but one was in the round of meetings. And that was six years ago Mm. that I met Christopher Johnson and stayed in touch with him. I remember calling and saying, is it okay? Can I stay in touch with that playwright or are you going to keep developing that play because I really want to? So there are different paths and it's taken years for that play to get ready to be on the stage. Absolutely. Plays will find different pathways, but I think it's also that that thing for artists to have faith that, yeah, have a faith in your in your script mm. that actually it will catch someone. There are play, plays across many different competitions which I've read that have found a way to or have been in conversations that oh, I really love that play. Yeah. That thing of the whole Australian theatre community is looking for for great stories, but we're all looking for different things. Yes, yeah. So that thing, I mean, you'll stay in touch with artists that you said no to because you are deeply invested in the idea of that work coming Absolutely. to stage. And we all get on the phone to each other and we talk <laughs> and we say, oh, well, there's this. Or I, you know, pick up the phone and say, what do I do about this, Maddie? And you go, <laughs> calm down, it's this. <laughs> you know, I, and I think I find that reassuring as an artist that it's it's not the end of a conversation. No, it's the start of a different one. Yeah. All art is subjective. And so someone could read the script that I've submitted and gone, I absolutely hated that. It wasn't funny. It wasn't whatever. And I would be upset that someone didn't like my play. But I also understand that I like it and I have enough faith in it that if someone goes, it didn't work for me, here's why I will receive that feedback and I'm not going to ignore yeah. that feedback. And you know what's interesting? You say that phrase. I think we always, always fear there's that thing of like, I hated it. So rarely have I ever heard that word coming out of the mouth yes. of an artist who's assessing other people's work. Mm. Yeah, I, they just don't do that. Yeah. They kind of go, oh, look, this didn't connect with me, mm-hmm. probably because of this and this in my taste. But who else? Like, did yeah. it connect to someone else? I could probably count on one hand, works where I've actively gone, I hate that. Cats the movie. Didn't see it. (laughs) Didn't see it. But you know what? Look at all those amazing people who 
we're trying to make something really great. Absolutely. So that's, I mean, we have huge fears that we kind of, we go, I think, you know, all these great people commit to something and it can be awful. We know that that's a possibility, but so rarely, most of the time we look at something and go, oh, that didn't work, but no one was trying to make something that didn't work. And as someone who, as well as being an artist, works regularly as a critic, I always have this weird thing of like, when I'm putting on my critic hat, understanding the artist point of view. And even if I am giving a show like a very negative review, I'm careful to understand that what choices were made for a reason and I respect those choices, even if they don't work for me for X, Y, and Z reasons. And I'm not going to be nice about it because, you know, I feel it is my job as a critic if I don't like something to explain why I don't like it. But I'm I'm doing that out of respect and honesty that I would want a critic to do that for my work. Mm. And it always comes from a place of love and understanding. And I think there is a misdemeanor about critics that they're failed artists that well, that they're in opposition to the mm. art as opposed to an extension of the critical dialogue around how and why we make work. Yeah. Yeah. There's that core question of who is this work for? And it's okay if the answer is it's not for me. Yeah. I've sat in a few different shows, you know, over the, well, I was going to say over the past two years, over the past year, because <laughs> I didn't see anything the year before, um, where I've just sat there and I've gone, look, I, I really like some of the choices that were made, but I also go out of it going, I don't feel moved, but this work is not for me. This yeah. story was not written for me to absorb, uh, for me and, you know, my tastes and my sense of humour, but I can come out of it going, that was still, you and know, I get fascinated by re- responses, and this happens to everyone, there'll be yeah. a moment where you don't laugh at something and everyone else seems to. Yes. So I'm yeah. looking around the room going, okay. Yeah, okay. what, what did I miss? What did I miss? Yeah. Yeah. Or when you're the only person that laughs at a joke. Yes. And you're like, was that a joke? Was I meant to or, laugh at or that? Or sometimes you laugh and you feel like saying to people, oh, it's okay, it's because, sorry, it's just because this yeah. thing happened to me and I find that's really, yeah. yeah. Oh, there were a couple of moments in your show, actually, where you made a, a couple of autistic jokes. And, I mean, I laughed because, number one, I know you, but I also know a bit more about how, you know, the autistic community jokes about certain things. And then you hear that staggered laugh response where people go, oh, they've given me permission. Ha, 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 I can sink into it now. <laughs> yeah. Because one of the lines is, oh, that sounded quite autistic. <laughs> yeah. And that line was consistently, even in the kind of test showings yeah. that I did of it, would get a, oh, okay, we can laugh now. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, yes, it's a joke. Yeah. And it's funny because I actually got quite self-conscious on the night because I realised I was laughing quite big <laughs> to a number of these jokes. And, again, no one else was really oh, they I would were try waiting. and catch the wave of your laughter. Oh, great. Or awesome. sitting next to you, just so you know. I was like, okay, yes. Yeah, I have permission to laugh at that. Or, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And th- but there are also some moments where you go, okay, well, maybe there are some comments that are jokes for people who relate to your experience or people who have similar. Again, not every joke is for every person in no. the room. And, I mean, yeah. I think about I saw Return to the Dirt on Saturday night and was bawling in the second half. I saw it with Hannah, our producer, who um, very kindly gave me her spare ticket so I could see it. But I remember speaking to her beforehand and she's like, I won't say anything. I just want you to see it. I want to see you see it. And I'm like, okay, all right, a little bit on edge. But I got it because as soon as I went in, it's like she knew that that show was something that would really, I mean, it's not written for me, it's written for Steve. Um, but, But overall, it'd be something that I would find really resonated 
in style, in form, in verbatimness, <laughs> if that's a word, I'm, I'm making it a word, just dramaturgically and, and the direction, which I thought was fabulous, by the way. Thank you. Um, that all of it just worked together and it was a show that I would love. And I was saying to Oliver and, and Sid in the elevator, I actually, you know, was very moved by it and I had to sit in my car afterwards just for a moment and, and quickly message my boyfriend and go, I just need you to know I'm really moved and this is how I feel and you're really important to me because it made me reflect on me and my life and the people I love and death and grief and and this hilarious story I have of being, I think I was 11 or 12 years old, not knowing how cremation works, being at my great-grandmother's funeral, sobbing because I thought they were going to light the coffin on fire right in front of me. So I got taken out of the room because I thought that that's how they did cremation. But it's weird how these stories resonate, but I also know that there might be someone else in that audience who they might go, that's a great show, but... And- It's theatre at its finest because it's not complex. It's not, I think what theatre has the power to do when it is working on all cylinders is you could theoretically remove all the tech elements, all of the whatever, and just in a room, read a script. And if uh, the script or if theatre is pure enough works magic and that's not to say with all the bells we love and- all the bells and whistles yes. we do yeah but we don't need them but we connect no. to what's human about it like that's what yeah. it comes down to i think that's one of the reasons why oliver's work worked so well is because it was human you mm-hmm. could see the human and you don't even need to be telling your own story to have a really human work but that's what we connect to most i mean triple x i mean i knew that that work was not for me but it was so human and i still was moved and yeah. oh my god it was incredible but coming out of it going, that was some of the most phenomenal theatre I've seen in a very yeah. long time. But you did just name three works that were personal auto- stories. Personal stories. I did. I did. Like, I did do that, didn't I? <laughs> it's <Oops>. okay. It's <laughs> okay. Like, it's also a thing that's happening a lot in theatre. Yeah. And that question about the valuing of authenticity yes. is actually making people braver about identifying with the story that they're writing. I think yeah. it used to be the tradition that you disappeared yourself into the work, that you had to create layers on top of it Mm. and something rang true but you denied it was autobiographical. That was naff. Yes. You know, all that emotion. But times are changing. And, and and I think that that sorry. question, no, you're right. I, I'm just conscious that Sin is waving the hand that says <laughs> we should probably wrap up sometime soon. And I'm trying to find a, a very big reach that talks about authenticity and things that matter and stories that reach us and spaces that allow mm. it to happen and the Bill Brown and your extraordinary show <laughs> and your extraordinary festival and how I'm already looking forward to the next one. Yay. I can't wrap it all up together. <laughs> this has been too wide-ranging a con- and beautiful a conversation about art and art. Is there anything you wanted to throw into the pool? I, I was, I'll quickly, and yes. I'll end on this. I was reading David Williamson's Home Truths, his new memoir, and he talks about how it was only this year when he was researching for his new book how autobiographical his works are, mm. that when he was writing them, he's like, oh, I'm, you know, doing whatever he was that he was dealing with at the time, unaware that what he was actually dealing was sorting through his own traumas. And and I think even if you're telling a fictional story, or on, on some level there are You're things, doing it because you need to. You're doing it because you need to, mm. and it will bleed in. Like the script that I submitted for the QPDA 
has elements of my life in it. It is also a fictional story that is completely made mm. up and did not happen. But moments have happened. But moments have mm. happened. Yeah. But there's something really interesting that happens in the disability arts community too is we kind of instinctively, one of our first big works will be a very personal autobiographical work and that's largely because of the lack of representation on stage because if we don't see characters and stories that we can you know, just pick up a text and go, you know what, I want to I want to put on secret bridesmaids business. And uh, sure, like the bride can be disabled, you know, no big deal. If I don't feel like I can do that, I'm going to create a show as I have done about my own life. But then the next work is a little bit different. And very similarly, the work that I submitted with a co-playwright um, is informed by our experiences, but it's definitely not um, our story by any means. And I think that Perhaps there's a shift happening in the industry because we're looking for, yes, what's human, what's true and authentic, but we're also looking to see ourselves on stage somehow. And how do we do that? Well, do we have to make our own work or can we invite people in to make it with us? Yeah. Big questions that's going to require another podcast, I, think I so. reckon. Yeah. So we're going <laughs> to... We're going to leave it there for today. Maddie, Oliver, thank you so much for being in conversation and thank you to all of our Queensland Theatre Quality Time listeners who've tuned in. I don't know when this will be available online for people to have a listen to, but I hope that it's given you some food for thought and that you're already putting uh, 2023 somewhere in the September area. Somewhere around there, yeah. Somewhere in September. Just put it in your long-term Google calendar <laughs> uh, that there'll be stuff to look out for with the Undercover Arts Festival. Thank you both. Thank, Thank you. you Thank us. you for having us. Thanks so much for listening to Quality Time. Please rate and review it and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter at QLD Theatre. You can visit our website, queenslandtheatre.com.au to sign up to our e-news and learn more about the stories we'll be sharing next. We can't wait to see you at the theatre again soon. Bye. There we go. Yay. Sorry, Sid. <laughs> <laughs> as if what as if that one was going to run shorter please there's so much to talk about.